welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews really do help new listeners find our show. You can also now leave comments on our website at techdoneright.io, and we have a newsletter where you can find interesting stories, podcast news, and some mini-essays from me. You can subscribe at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. Thanks. Today on Tech Done Right, I talked to Macy Peterson and Alicia Drucker. Macy is the CEO of On Second Thought, a company that lets you take back texts or internet messages that you sent by mistake. Alicia is TableXI's Director of Software Delivery. We talk about how Macy took an embarrassing text and turned it into an idea and then into a company, and what it's like being an entrepreneur who happens to be a black woman, and how supporting a diverse and inclusive team can benefit both your employees and your company. Just one other note, we had an unusually high number of audio quality issues this time around. Uh, I hope you'll find the show worth listening to despite those issues. Uh, Macy, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am Macy Peterson, the co-founder and CEO of On Second Thought, and I am excited to be here with you, Noel and Alicia. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. And we also have uh, Alicia Drucker. Hi. I'm the Director of Software Delivery for TableXI, and I'm excited to get the chance to talk to Macy. So, Macy, why don't you tell us a little bit about On Second Thought and how you came to start the company and what that experience has turned out to be like? Yeah, that's a great compound question. I don't know about you guys, but um, have you ever sent a text that you wish you could take back? Yeah, yes. I usually want to edit grammatical mistakes, but I'm weird that way. <laughs> no, I'm the same way. And um, On Second Thought lets you take back text messages before they get to the other person. And I came up with the idea after autocorrect horribly editing one of my messages. It has a vendetta against me and it likes to change around words. And after one particularly embarrassing incident that involved an ex-boyfriend and I couldn't take the message back, I realized there had to be a way. Well, I realized there wasn't. And I also found out that many people had been in a similar predicament. I decided to see if there was a there there with creating an ability to undo messages. And so I got started by winning first place for the idea in a pitch competition at South by Southwest. And that was validation that not only was it a good idea, but it was also a viable business. And then from there, I brought on my co-founder, Stuart, who's a good friend from college. And we started building the messaging app. And it's been a really interesting experience and journey with, of course, the high highs and the low lows that make you wonder if you're part of Dante's Inferno. Yeah. But overall, it's been one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And I really do say that it's a true blessing and privilege to be able to wake up every day and bring something to the world that I know has a positive impact, but that I'm also deeply passionate about and that I think falls directly within my mission for my life. So I've never really been at, at a pitch competition. What, what was that like? And what do you think was the thing that put you over the top there? Well, all pitch competitions are different. So this one in particular was about 200 people in a room at South By with a panel of about five judges from companies, including Sprint, Big Commerce, NASDAQ, and uh, a couple of venture capitalists. You know, about 20 companies pitched. I was the first up. And I think part of it had to do a lot with just, you know, being blessed and a lot of it with that first and last recency in terms of people's memories. But I think what stuck is the fact that we solve a problem that 
pretty much everyone has had. We've conducted surveys and know from those surveys that 71% of people have sent a text that they want to take back and that an additional 87% wish they had the ability to undo text messages. So I think because it's such a simple problem and our technology is a clear solution, that is likely why not only did we win that competition, but we've seen such traction within the marketplace amongst consumers as well as uh, with our client licensees. How many people uh, do you have working for you now? We have a team of seven right now, and we're adding about six positions between now and the end of the summer. What's been surprising about the process of taking this from an idea to a company that has employees and customers? I think the most surprising thing is where we are now, and that stems from our thesis behind how we bring our our technology to the public and deliver it to the public. So we started off as a messaging app to let you take back text messages because we thought that that was the best way to solve the problem, needing to take back messages. And quickly, we realized um, as we spread to 190 countries that people needed the ability to undo tons of other messages like peer-to-peer remittances that they send via like M-Pesa or social media posts like our president constantly needs to undo his tweets because he says he deletes them because of typos or even attorneys telling us, you know, I've accidentally sent the wrong contract to the wrong client or people, many professionals have had that email snafu. And so we realized, okay, people are having lots of troubles and making lots of mistakes in mobile environments. And we know that our technology can fix it. However, it doesn't make the most sense for all of that to happen within one app environment. And so about a year ago, we were approached by wireless carriers about licensing our technology. And with that, we decided to pivot from being a B2C company to a B2B to C of sorts. Mm-hmm. So that we license our technology to those platforms in order to allow their customers to fix their myriad problems or mistakes that they make. And so I think that's the most surprising thing is that in the beginning, I thought we were going to be direct to consumer and, you know, the next WhatsApp or whatever. And to have the change and pivot to B2B was not necessarily something that I saw coming, but it's a strategy that I fully believe in. I think it's the best way to to deliver the best service and product to our customers. But it also allows our technology to be ubiquitous so that they can fix any mistake they make in any mobile environment. I had a question to back up a little bit. Uh, I was wondering how you got from realizing that you'd sent that text that was bad for you and your relationship to South by Southwest. How did you get from the text to the idea to the pitch competition? So when I sent that text, the ex-boyfriend and I had actually been broken up for six months. So it made the text message even more embarrassing. But immediately after sending it, I texted a number of my friends asking them if they had ever sent messages that they wanted to take back. And I did that to validate that this is a problem that more people have than just me and my clumsiness. So once I had that validation and all of my friends overwhelmingly said, yes, they'd have that problem, I knew there was something there. And it was, you know, something that I basically kicked back to to the back of my mind and continued to think about. Um, and then a few months later, I found out about a pitch competition at South by Southwest. And they were calling for everything from ideas to companies. And I thought, well, I have an idea and that's all I have. 
So I applied to the pitch competition with the idea of on second thought. And the competition was on a Friday. That Monday, I learned that I'd been invited to pitch. And through a series of miracles that included riding in cars with strangers, very light hitchhiking, and flying standby, I made it to the competition. And like I said, out of the 20 companies, one first place. So it was really one of those things where at right place at the right time in that I had an idea. They were looking for ideas. I happened to open up that email from Startup Grind or Startup Weekend about the pitch competition. And I just had the audacity to believe that I had something, an idea that was worth presenting and that, that I thought could win. I mean, it's a really interesting story. And during another conversation, I'd be interested in digging into what light hitchhiking means exactly. <laughs> but uh, once you won the pitch competition, Noel asked a good question about what was surprising about having this become a company. And it's very interesting to hear about how you pivoted to B2B. But I am curious, how did you go from, okay, I won this pitch competition to now I'm going to start a technology company? It looks like your educational background isn't in tech. So how did you make that leap? Yeah, it was truly a leap of faith. At the time, I had just joined Marriott, and I was doing brand management and innovation for them by day. And after winning the competition, I thought, well, now I have to make this a thing, um, especially since we garnered some press as a result of our win. And I called my good friend, asked him to join me as my co-founder. And so I'd work at Marriott by day and work on On Second Thought by night. And it's not as though I immediately quit my job. I quit Marriott about nine months later. And by the time I had done that, we'd already released our app into the Play Store. We already had a sizable group of users or user base. We'd already raised a pretty good amount of friends and family money. And we'd also already garnered a lot of press. And so when I finally took that leap of faith and and left my career to do this full time, I al- I'd already de-risked it a little bit. Granted, I had no idea that I would face some of the things I faced as a founder um, because you can only de-risk launching a company so much and working on it, uh, on it full time so much. But it had gotten to a point where I realized there is a there there. This is something that I can grow into a very successful company. So what's it been like? Like, What has it been like being... Uh, a founder, have you, what, what was it like getting funding? Like at what point, you said you started with friends and family money. At what point have you been able to get other investors? What challenges did you have while you were doing that? So raising friends and family was really easy. We actually didn't have to pitch any friends and family. They were all inbound requests saying, hey, Macy, I really believe in you. I believe in what you're working on. Can I invest? The fact that we had received so much press attention while raising our friends and family around definitely helped. So that every time I posted a story on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd pretty much get a phone call from someone in my network wanting to invest in my company. And so as a result, we raised about $150,000 from friends and family. In addition to that, we won a couple of other pitch competitions, which yielded about another 60000 And so we had a pretty good basis, financial basis to get things up and running. And then from there, we raised angel capital. And then we've also raised venture capital as a result of just persistence and prayer. (laughs) Um, And also demonstrating that we can meet our metrics, that we have product market fit, 
that we can also grow into a multi-billion dollar company because the total market value is billions of dollars, actually hundreds of billions of dollars, and our addressable market is tens of billions. So all of those things made it easier or it made sense for venture capital investors to put their money into our company. There's a lot of detail about how Silicon Valley can be a difficult place to break into. There's a whole show <laughs> about this and about like navigating all of the politics and layers and kind of ridiculous situations that entrepreneurs like yourself find your company falling into. Did you feel that the established group there was hard to break into or did it feel like your product was just resonating so much that it wasn't an issue? I would say that the Bay Area in general, just socially, is a beast of its own. It's unlike any other region I've ever lived in. It's very different from Chicago, DC, Atlanta, LA, even. It's just its own true ecosystem, environment, and culture. So I would say that in general, the Bay Area is just its own different animal and it can be challenging. However, when it comes to, or when it came to, you know, moving out there and getting involved, I would say I had two things going for me. And one is that I am a woman. And the other thing is that I'm black. And because of those two things, and because there are only a handful of women founders who have raised over a million dollars, it made it so that people like me are at the forefront of many others' minds. And so when it came to funding, that was challenging. Um, however, in terms of just getting help and exposure and people willing to be an ally and roll up their sleeves and help us figure out and tackle this problem that we were solving, I would say that the community has been extremely supportive. Of course, you're going to run into, you know, the more challenging personalities, but I would say that's true of any industry in any city. So would you say that in a sense, the focus on the lack of inclusivity and diversity in Silicon Valley in the last couple of years has actually been an advantage for you. It's been a huge advantage. I mean, granted, it doesn't put me in a place of privilege, right? And it still mm-hmm. requires me to work twice as hard in order to be considered half as good or good enough. Good is still true. However, I would say that there is at least a projected conscious desire to make Silicon Valley a more inclusive and diverse place and Mm -hmm. also to see diverse entrepreneurs succeed. And Mm -hmm. as a result of that, and the fact that we're solving a problem that everyone believes in and the fact that a lot, uh, I've been blessed that a lot of people have just been drawn to me and my personality that they've been wanting and willing and and offering to roll up their sleeves to help us bring our solution not only into the marketplace, but to make it as successful as possible. I'll give you an example. Last week, I met with an investor who I've known for a couple of years. I met him right before I moved out to San Francisco. And uh, he has time between two funds. He's leaving one and rejoining another or and joining another. And we're at lunch and he said to me, you know what, Macy? I just really believe in what you're doing and I really believe in you. And I would like to know if you would be okay with me interning for you while I'm in this transition. Um, I think your product could do really well outside of the U.S. as well as within, as well as within the U.S., which you're already seeing traction there. So would you let me 
try to open up some of these international markets for you. Would you allow me to introduce you to some potential partners or people who can help navigate those in those countries? Because like, I don't want you to pay me. I don't want equity. I just want to help you. And there are a lot of people like that within Silicon Valley and within the Bay Area. And so those are the folks who are really at the forefront of driving change when it comes to diversity and inclusion and bringing really great businesses into the spotlight, but also into the marketplace in an impactful way. Do you ever have a mixed or complex reaction to the impulse that folks might have around seeing a Black woman CEO walk in their door? I mean, I myself am a white woman who has, mm-hmm. has, has sometimes felt like I've walked into a building and somebody's eyes lit up like, oh, a woman, great. Um, that's the kind of attitude that I'm kind of asking about. I mean, it's great that it's been an advantage and it's great that the timing has been really good for uh, some of the focus that has been on Silicon Valley. But I'm just curious that it seems like that, that's an area where you might be like, oh, like this is good, but I'm also a little conflicted in my general emotions about it. Yeah, I mean, no one necessarily sees me at the beginning of the meeting and are just like, wow, we're just so glad you're a woman and you're here, right? I think also the idea that that is what opens up our doors is would diminish the value and the success in the in the cachet of our business. I think that the first reason mm-hmm. why people want to talk to us is because we have a great product. We have really good traction and we solve a problem that everyone has and everyone wants to have the ability to undo things and to fix their mistakes before they get to the other person. And beyond that, the bigger thing is people want more control over their personal brand. And we allow you, to, our technology allows you to do that. So I think that's what gets us in the door. I think that's why mm-hmm. we're interesting. I think that's why people want to talk to us. I hope and I believe that is not overshadowed by the fact that I am a black woman. I think that it's just like an and to, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. She has this great business. This product is amazing. It's getting this great traction. It's received all this funding. Oh, wow. And it's run by a woman. That's wow. You know? So I, I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I think more of a second thought, no pun intended, than, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the highlight and, and the foundational thought. Well, do you find when you're hiring that do you have any advantage or disadvantage? over other companies, like, do you have a more diverse and inclusive, I guess with only seven employees, it's kind of hard to tell, but do you feel like you have a more diverse and inclusive hiring process than other similar companies? Um, is that something you're consciously trying to do or is it not something that you worry about? Funny, I was asked a similar question the other day and I wouldn't say that we have a diverse and inclusive hiring process, but diversity and inclusion is at the heart of our company, just given the fact that it's found both it's founded by two minorities, right? So we naturally attract women, we naturally attract minorities, and we naturally attract the best of the best of them. And so we don't have to say, you know, we want to see the best candidates. Oh, and be sure to throw in some women and minorities as well. We get resumes from and we talk to and we know and we hire the best people, period. And we have an extremely diverse team. Um, and that's something that I am very excited about and very proud of. The fact that these people who are highly qualified and very successful believe in what we're doing and my vision and have 
joined us in bringing it into fruition. Yeah, I guess that it's a, you know, I, I know uh, from talking to some of the people that we've hired that it's very important to go to uh, the about page or the team page of a company and see people who look like you. And I, I would imagine that, that that gives you an advantage when dealing with, you know, engineers who are from different kinds of underrepresented groups, that they see this as a place that they're not going to have to be the first one or the only person uh, in the room. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say that our team has folks from pretty much every background. And I think the other thing, and this is just, it's a point of laziness that I've called Silicon Valley out on. And that is that we know where to look. We know where to recruit. I, I had a conversation with this gentleman last week when I was speaking on a panel and he's like, you know, I just don't know where to find qualified women. And I said to him, have you tried recruiting from the Seven Sisters School? Have you tried recruiting from Spelman College? all about contacting the sororities and plugging into their alumni networks. It's not like women are, are hidden, you know, it's not as candidates <laughs> are like hidden and you have to have like a secret password in order to get to them. You just have to be creative and know where to look. And it's not even a matter of creativity. It's just a matter of not being lazy and always going to the same people or the same places and always having the same networks. It's about expanding and, and by expanding your thought process, you also expand your your talent pool. I was just, I think maybe actually probably almost about two years ago now, I saw a talk at a Madison Ruby conference uh, from a woman who was calling out New York area companies for not recruiting in her neighborhood in the Bronx, a more of a minority neighborhood and saying, making the same point, like we're here, we are ready to be recruited and it's just very hard to get attention. Right. And I do think it's fair to call that out as some laziness, right? Because all these companies it's have all it is. set, yeah, all these companies have set channels uh, where they're getting their existing candidate pool from, and it's a matter of expanding that to different locations. And I know that for us uh, at the Table XI, we have been spending time recently researching and figuring out where can we expand our hiring? Like where, it, where are mm-hmm. those places where people are not hiding in plain sight? They are just in plain sight and uh, how do we right, exactly. access those? So it does take a little bit of extra work um, or switching the focus, but I agree with you that it does feel like lazy is a good term there. Yeah. I mean, it's all it is, is laziness. And, you know, it could even be laziness within your own network. There's no reason why in America in 2017, people shouldn't have a diverse, not group of friends, a diverse network, right? So that if you said, I'm looking for candidates of this background, someone should be, you should have someone in your network who could say, okay, look, how about you reach out to XYZ places? And so Mm -hmm. it's either, the laziness can go both ways. It can either be they aren't, think uh, hiring managers and companies aren't thinking about all the places and pool talent pools that they can tap into or hiring managers and companies have been lazy about their own personal network. But either way, mm-hmm. I just, I don't believe there is an excuse for it. Yeah. I also think that, that companies don't only put, put stock in the value of having diverse viewpoints after they've been burned on it a couple of times. And that exactly. is the kind of thing that, that encourages you. That's the kind of thing that encourages you to, to seek out and expand your network. Uh, and if more companies came to the table thinking, you know, just, having a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different points of view on the job is a, is a positive value in and of itself. Uh, then that gets around that, that helps you uh, overcome some of that 
inertia? Well, there's data that proves that diverse teams create one better products and two have higher revenue. In fact, I didn't get a chance to read the story, but the former First Lady, Michelle Obama, spoke about it yesterday when she called out Silicon Valley for its lack of diversity. And she said, it's hurting your bottom line because you're creating products Mm -hmm. that don't resonate well with the mass audience or they don't perform as well as they could if you had somebody, if you had people from diverse backgrounds to speak into your strategies, whether it's from the product or the marketing standpoint. You know, that's why Pepsi was in hot water over the Kendall Jenner Oh, my. Uh, campaign, you know, <laughs> or I mean, there's just so many obvious, obvious problems that could have been fixed if you'd had one diverse voice in the room. And on the other side, there's so many cases where there's obviously an audience like really ready to and eager to embrace something that speaks to them that it seems like counterproductive not to take that into account when you're putting a team together. Absolutely. Right. And I think. And I think particularly around the um, example you just threw out uh, with Pepsi and the tone deaf commercial that they had, it's not just if there were diverse voices that, that were empowered in the organization yeah. to speak up. Because I have no doubt that Absolutely. there were diverse people like involved in the making of that. I mean, there are probably hundreds, if not a thousand people involved in, in, in creating that. But it was Clearly, you know, the decisions that were being made were not ones where we had enough people of different backgrounds to kind of raise their hand and be assured when they did that their voice would be heard and their opinion would be given the weight that it should have been, which I think is often the problem. It's, you know, it's not just that an organization doesn't have diverse folks in it or is creating an inclusive environment, but it's also where people are slated in the organization to actually make a change or be able to um, kind of speak the truth they're seeing is also a problem. I completely agree, Alicia. Organizations need to have decision makers and people in leadership positions that represent diverse backgrounds and underrepresented voices. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because those are the people who, like you said, are empowered to say, hey, this Mm -hmm. isn't going to fly with this demographic. Hey, did you realize that this is slightly offensive, you know, or... Um, Or maybe we need to think about it this way. Back when uh, software companies were trying to emulate successful auto companies in terms of process, one of the examples was a company where any line worker could stop the line if they saw a car, something that wasn't right, that everybody was empowered to say, hey, this isn't right. Not only does it help to have people in leadership positions with backgrounds, but also to have a culture where people can stand up and say, like, this is not right and have that be heard by the leadership, even if the people making those claims aren't in the leadership. Absolutely. One of the things that I also wanted to ask a little bit about as far as how this topic leads to innovation and focus for on second thought is that some of the articles that have been gaining popularity recently pointing out that the white men in tech, it's overwhelming, right? That it's uh, cis white men. And that the majority of our technology is being built by them and from that perspective. So you mentioned that On Second Thought has been lucky to kind of have a great pool of candidates from all different uh, walks of life and backgrounds. How does that help encourage the inclusivity of experience when actually leveraging the product? And how have you kind of used the great pool of folks that you have working for you to focus on inclusivity of experience for the product? I would say the answer to that question now is very different from what it was when we were more consumer-facing. 
And I say that because we're talking to a much smaller audience now that then gets dispersed to a larger audience, but we're not necessarily always involved in the marketing of the feature within the platforms where we integrate. So from a consumer standpoint, and when we were a consumer-focused company with a consumer-focused product, it really came through with the features and thinking through, okay, people in Kenya are sending mobile money transfers to each other via M-Pesa. They make mistakes doing that at a very rapid clip. I have never been to Kenya. I've never been on the continent of Africa. And therefore, that's an issue that I never would have known about. Um, and it's because not only do we have a diverse team, but we also have an extremely diverse user base that we were able to be enlightened to that. And as a result, it was something that we were looking at for the product roadmap of the app itself. But more important, it's another vertical into which we can license so that we can still allow people to undo the mistakes they make when sending money to others. So that's just one example of, you know, how a diverse team or diverse user base who we listen to can impact the product and the experience for the rest of our customers. And I think that in of itself is actually a huge bonus when you have uh, folks of diverse experiences working at a company. Because I think that one of the challenges that men working in tech sometimes have is the assumption that their experience is the experience and a Mm -hmm. lack of awareness that lots of people have different experiences that is not as easy for that group to understand uh, because society tends to be aimed in their direction in the first place. So I think a really important element of a company to be able to take a step back and say, oh, this isn't working the way we expected or they have a problem I didn't even know about. We need to explore that and figure out a way to solve it for this group that is different from me, but is a real problem for them. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, because you don't know what you don't know, right? And if you don't have mm-hmm. mechanisms in your organization that allow you to see your blind spot and to understand what you don't know or to have an awareness of what you don't know, then you'll continue to operate in a self-validating way. Yeah, because the leap from I sent an embarrassing text to an ex to people in Kenya inadvertently sending the wrong person money that's a leap that you need some knowledge to get to. Like one of them, it seems like that doesn't not necessarily follow one from the other. And it helps to have experiences or be exposed to things that will lead you to make those kinds of leaps and find those kinds of customers and audiences uh, that will be responding to things that are that you wouldn't have thought of or you wouldn't have even seen when you started out. Exactly. It, it's a logical leap that I didn't know was logical until I knew that was an issue. But prior to having awareness of the fact that people are making mistakes in those environments, I never would have guessed it. Macy, you first kind of came on TableXI's radar because Mark Rickmeyer, who is on TableXI's management team, uh, met you at Chicago Ideas Week. And he just said that the panel was, I think everybody just kind of started talking about some experiences that they had at work that had been difficult, uh, whether uh, I think there were a series of different women on the panel. Um, and I think everybody just kind of started sharing some of the things that had happened to them or that they had experienced. And he was shocked. He's like, what? I can't believe it. And I was wondering, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember the, I don't think he told me the specific stories that you had shared. Um, but I was just wondering if you find that people are often shocked by the experiences you share or not. I think um, it depends on who I'm talking to. So by and large, mm-hmm. women are like, 
of course that happened, right? That's happened to me Mm -hmm. or something worse to me or something similar has happened to another woman I know, right? I would say for men, kind of. um, Mm -hmm. It depends on, you know, if they have daughters of working age, right? Right. (laughs) So I'll, I'll give you an example. I was pitching to this investment group and the feedback I had received was Macy delivered the best pitch we've ever had, we've ever seen. Excellent presenter. Business makes sense. We are going to pass because she was too confident in the way she answered our questions. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wait, that doesn't even make any sense. Because if mm-hmm. I wasn't confident in the way I answered their questions, then they would say, she doesn't know what she's talking about. We're not investing because we don't trust that she understands how to guide this business, right? And so I realized mm-hmm. that it's a comment that they most likely would not say to a man. And beyond that, I am fairly confident they wouldn't say it to a white man. And mm-hmm. I told my dad about this because I was livid. I was so angry. And I told my dad about this. And he said, it's crazy that you are still facing the same crap that I faced in the 60s or in the 70s in Chicago. And he's like, it's unbelievable that 40 years later, the same crap is still going on and that you have to endure it now. Um, Mm -hmm. I also spoke to my godmother about it. And she is, you know, another extremely successful woman, storied career. And she was like, oh, yeah, honey, I went through the same crap in the 70s when I was coming up and when I was early in my career. And she said, I even have gone through that same crap even now while I'm sitting on corporate boards, right? So I think it depends on who you're talking to. I think if it's Mm -hmm. someone who has had a similar experience, they're like, yep, that checks in there. It sucks. It's unbelievable that's still happening for the experience. And we just have to continue to move toward progress. Right. But I think if it's someone who has never faced anything like that before, that it is shocking. And mm-hmm. the nice thing is that hopefully they'll take our experiences and our stories and execute against them to make sure that those same things don't happen within their organization. Mm-hmm. One of the things that TableXI has been doing over the last uh, year or so is we have a weekly lunch and learn on Thursdays. And one of the lunch and learns every month is set aside to talk about some diversity and inclusivity topic. And, you know, that's a huge, huge area. Um, and it, uh, and sometimes we focus on bringing somebody in to talk to us. And sometimes we just dissect something that has occurred in the world. It varies a lot. But I think for me personally, and I think for some others who attend as well, the sessions that feel really valuable for our internal work environment are the sessions where everybody just kind of shares stories. And we talk about, hey, this happened to me and it didn't feel good because of this reason. Or one time we had one of our women designers, she actually had an experience off at a client site and she talked the client had then come in and they both talked together about the situation that had occurred and how they unpacked it. And to me, that's been super valuable. And I was wondering if you agree that it's valuable for people in underrepresented groups in tech to speak up and share their stories more and trying to provide more places and kind of spaces for that so that there are safe and appropriate kind of opportunities for folks to share their stories. Because so far in this year that we've spent having these sessions, it does feel like personal stories from people that others know are the ones that really help them internalize the situation the best. What do you think? 
Uh, I think it depends. It depends on if sharing is followed by action, right? So Mm -hmm. saying these are the issues, this is how we propose we can fix them first within our organizations and then how society can fix them at large. Because that's a trap that a lot of initiatives like that can fall into if it's just about sharing experiences and then going on your merry way. A lot of value comes when those experiences and reactions are then turned into strategies that then yield change. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, I think they're very valuable. Mm -hmm. What are um, some actions that you've seen that have been taken after that kind of situation where folks have shared a bunch of experiences and then the company or organization has said, okay, we're going to take some action. Where have you seen that be really successful? I mean, I think in some places we're still in a wait and see period, but I think one that mm-hmm. immediately comes to mind is Uber. And we're still waiting to see what happens, but the first thing was people shared, right? They said women came out on via blogs and other media outlets and social media and said, I have been sexually harassed at Uber. I have been discriminated against at Uber. This is not a diverse work environment. This is not an inclusive work environment. From those allegations and those stories being shared, Uber hired Eric Holder and his firm to do an investigation to see, okay, how many of these stories vet out, right? And and how not only how many of these stories can be verified, but also how many more stories like them are within our organization. After that, they started firing the people who are the offenders. So in the last quarter, I think they've let go like 11 or 12 employees based upon the research found in the sexual harassment and discrimination cases. And then Mm -hmm. yesterday, they announced the hiring of my friend, and I'm so excited for her, Bozma St. John, to be the new chief brand officer to help turn things around and make sure that this culture that they're establishing actually seeps down into Uber's spirit and their true soul and culture so that what they're preaching is actually happening within the organization. So we still have to see if this works, right, and and how successful it is. But I think they're a pretty good case study in how you can go from this is a problem, I'm sharing that this is a problem, to direct action in a pretty short period of time. Thank you for sharing that example. I think that's a really relevant one for right now um, that's happening. I think that certainly there were a couple of people who came out to talk about their experience at Uber in a situation that was probably personally somewhat dangerous for them, right? Like they didn't know how what the reaction might be and it really made a lot of change, which is great. And I think one of the things that Table Bias challenged ourselves to do just in a general way is to make sure that you don't have to be in a situation where it could be dangerous for you to talk about it. We want it to be something that we just regularly talk about so that we can continue to make small changes and tweaks and work on it before it gets to anything close to the example that has become kind of extreme of Uber. Uh, but that's helpful just to understand uh, that you have seen an organization, even in that place, make really great strides. And congratulations to your friend for the new position. Okay. Uh, I think that we're pretty much out of time, but I wanted to thank both of you for being on today. Uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, this was a great conversation um, and thanks. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find TableXI on Twitter, at TableXI, and me, at Noel Rapp. 
The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or subscribe to our newsletter at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. TableXI is a UX and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.